Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Feast of Tabernacles 2019. This is such a special evening. I know my wife and I always enjoy being here on this very exciting evening when we see friends that we haven't seen, in some cases, for months or even years. There's some excitement in the air as the feast begins, and I'm thankful that you took the time and planned ahead so that you could be here for this special occasion. This evening, I'm going to remind you why we are here. It's so easy to get caught up in vacation and going here, going there, seeing someplace we've never seen before, having time off from work, but this is not a vacation. This is a feast of the eternal, and we need to make sure that we never forget the purpose of the feast. So, it's a, the Feast of the Eternal, and it's a commanded assembly for God's people, and it has a very important purpose. And I'd like to just review a little bit of that purpose here this evening. Let's turn over to the book of Zechariah, the 14th chapter. I'm sure that you will hear, hear this read from time to time throughout the feast. I'm sure that some of the ministers will come back to it, and that's fine. It's just fine to be able to hear scriptures over and over again. But here in Zechariah 14, it begins, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. This gives us the time setting, that it is at the very end of this age. The day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil shall be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. This is something in the future. This is something that is going to come, where there will be all nations gathered together against Jerusalem. And they're going to fight the Jews there at that time. It says, The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. The fact that half of it goes into captivity would lend itself to the understanding that it is a divided city, as we see it, a divided city even today. Then the Eternal will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. He's going to have to come back and solve the problem that we have here on this earth of nations fighting against nations and trying to destroy the Jewish people at that time. And it's going to actually lead to, as Jesus pointed out in Matthew, the 24th chapter, eventually it's going to come to a place where we could destroy all life from the face of the earth if we're not for his intervention. So the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, verse uh, 3, and then verse 4, And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north and half toward the south. So it's going to have a geological change there. It's going to split a large earthquake. And the verses that follow show that living waters are going to flow out from there, a type of God's Spirit, just a, a type of it. Those waters are going to heal some of the waters that have been destroyed by mankind and by the plagues that are going to take place there. And then in verse 8 it says, And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the eternal shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. So Jesus Christ is going to come back. He's going to save the Jews from a terrible time that is coming yet ahead. Not just the Jews, but all of mankind in reality. And he's going to have to do so with the only way that we seem to understand, and that is with brute force. And he's going to defeat 
all those nations that come up against uh, him to uh, against the Jews to destroy them. We read this same uh, time of this same time over in Revelation, and in the 19th chapter, we find that it leads up to the time when the bride of Christ uh, will be made ready, and there's coming a wedding feast, a time of uh, uh, of a wedding between Christ and the Lamb, between Christ and the church. And then in verse 11, it says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses, indicating that we're going to come back with him. We will meet him in the air, but we will come back with Christ and come down to the Mount of Olives where he's going to defeat his enemies and all those that come up against him. It says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron." He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The world doesn't like to talk about the wrath of God. They just want to talk about the love of God. But in reality, like a parent who has to deal with a rebellious child, sometimes there's a little bit of pain involved. And there's a certain amount of anger and wrath that a parent has when he sees his child going out and running in the street, doing something that could be harmful, that it could actually kill the child. And so he's going to intervene, he's going to deal with the situation. And Christ will come back with wrath, and he's going to deal with mankind, not because he hates us, but because he loves mankind. He loves every single one of his creatures. And when we get to the eighth day, the last great day of the feast, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. Verse 16, And he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so often people read that. In fact, the Messiah has a piece where it talks about King of kings and Lord of lords. But no one stops to think about, he's the king of what kings? He's the Lord of what lords? And yet the scriptures tell us exactly what that is. Uh, when we, we look at them, and we'll look at them here in just a moment. In fact, why don't we just turn over there. Uh, let's go over to Luke, the 19th chapter, Luke 19, because this shows us who those kings and lords are going to be. In Luke, the 19th chapter, verse 11, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. They knew the message of Christ, that it was about the kingdom of God, but they didn't understand the time setting. They didn't understand exactly how that was going to come about. Therefore, he said, verse 12, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So, obviously, the nobleman is a type of Christ, and he goes into a different country or goes up to heaven in reality, a far country and to heaven to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And you can read of that in the book of Daniel, the seventh chapter, where it talks about the crowning of this king. 
It says, So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, or units of money, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him, and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And that is our world today. They do not want Christ reigning over them. They do not want the Word of God in, involved in their lives at all. And our world hates Christ, hates God, even though they may, some may profess that to be the case, but many are just very openly against all religion, especially Christianity. They might even be for some other religions, but not Christianity in all of its different forms. But they hate God, they hate the Bible. It says, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And yet, that individual, Jesus Christ, will reign over them. And so it was, verse, 13, verse 15, that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given money to be called to him, that he might know how much each every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful in a very little have authority over ten cities. And as we look at this, we read through there, we see that the, the second one comes along, and his mina has gained five uh, minas, and so he says the same thing, well done, good and faithful servant, have you authority over five cities. So we see a certain pattern here of rulership over cities, and different responsibilities in the kingdom of God as it rules over this earth the kingdom of God, the family of God, as they rule upon the earth for a thousand years. So we, we see that here, and we recognize that the, the kings that he is the king of are going to be the resurrected saints, those who have proven themselves to be faithful during this time on the earth. In fact, let's go over to uh, Revelation once again. Uh, let's pick it up in chapter 20. It says, uh, after this battle that uh, defeats Christ's enemies, he says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Yes, there is a spirit being out here who is influencing the minds of mankind that is creating a lot of the havoc that we see here, most of the havoc that we see. We have our own human nature, but he's able to work with our minds, be able to put into our minds thoughts that we think are right, that seem logical to us, but they're not God's ways. And, you know, this is, as Dr. Meredith used to say, this is the mind of God. And we need to understand this instead of just looking at things from my perspective or our perspective. We need to look at it from God's perspective. But this spirit being that is influencing mankind in society and ideas and its politics and everything else is going to be removed for a thousand years. Then in verse 4, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Yes, there are our brethren from the past who have been literally beheaded 
for the Word of God. They have put God first above all else. And we don't know what's going to happen exactly in our own personal lives in the future, but when we know the direction the world is going and when we see that fifth seal in the sixth chapter of Revelation, we recognize there's coming a time of persecution upon God's people, at least some of God's people. And so we know that there's some very difficult times ahead of us. But as Jesus said in Luke, the 14th chapter, about verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate or love to a lesser degree, father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So, brethren, we need to understand this is not playing church, as, as Dr. Meredith used to say so many times. This is not playing church. This is for all the marbles. This is everything that we are living for. And putting Christ first is so important. But it says here that those who are willing to put him first, no matter what the, the consequences, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, they lived and they reigned or ruled with Christ for a thousand years. And so we see here the, the pattern of what's going to happen at the end of the age. There's coming a time of, of trouble such as the world has never known before. And Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to be king over all the earth. He's going to be reigning from Jerusalem. And you and I and all faithful people, those of us who are faithful all the way to the end, those who are his are going to be rulers with him. The, the kings and the priests that he is the king and the, the, the Lord of. We can see that over in the fifth chapter of Revelation, Revelation 5 and verse 9, the song of the saints, it says, They sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, but you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. We had to be redeemed because of our evil works. We had to be redeemed. We had the death penalty on us. It says, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. God loves people of all nations and races on this earth. And those who are His at the end are going to come from all nations and races and languages or tongues. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. This is where we're going to reign. Just as we read there in Zechariah the 14th chapter. Let's go back there to Zechariah 14. And let's notice what happens after his enemies are put down. It tells us that a very special event is going to take place for the people of the earth. They're going to have the opportunity to do exactly what you and I are doing tonight. Meeting together on the 15th day of the 7th month each, each year and coming together for the Feast of Tabernacles. Notice in verse 16, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem. So there will be survivors. There will be people who survived this, people back home that didn't go to the war, even those that were maybe on the outer outskirts of the, the battles. They're going to go back and they're going to tell their people, their family, their relatives, their nations what happened at Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, you might wonder, well, why does it mention the Feast of Tabernacles? Why doesn't it mention uh, 
the Passover or the Feast of Pentecost or something else? Well, because this is what this feast pictures. It pictures that thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, the kingdom of God ruling over mankind for a thousand years. And so this is a time when they're going to have to send up representatives. Some people say, well, you know, Jerusalem isn't big enough to handle the whole earth. Well, that may be so, but they will at least have to send up representatives. And I'm sure that everyone will want to come up at least once in his lifetime and maybe more But there will have to be festival sites in other locations around the world. And, you know, God is very practical in that way. We're not going to put, uh, you know, five billion people all in the city of Jerusalem. It's not going to work. But they will have to send up representatives. And it says, it shall be that, verse 17, whichever the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem, those that refuse that call uh, to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. He'll cut off the rain supply. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So, Christ is not kidding. He's not playing around. I, I sometimes worry about those who uh, claim to be members of the church who just Don't come up to the feast for whatever reason. Now, I know that there are those because of health issues that can't can't do so. There are brand new people that may not have the funds to be able to come up to the feast. We understand that. But when people are able-bodied, they ought to be here. And for most people, I think most of the church, we are here. But it's so easy for some to just say, well, I'll just keep the feast back home. And that's a problem. And we can't look at it that way. We have to go to where God tells us to come. And so he says, This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. He's very serious about that. And he expects us to keep the feast. He expects us to keep it now because we're going to teach this to the nations. And how are we going to be able to do so if we could come up to keep the feast and we are just too lazy or We've got a, a cat or a dog. I know sometimes people say, well, I can't leave my pets. Well, uh, you have to deal with that. Are you going to put Christ first or your pets first? Uh, there, there are issues like that that have to be dealt with. And we have to look in the mirror and say, how serious am I about this? Am I going to obey God now so that I can teach these things in the future? And I hope we are able to, to make those decisions. And those of you who are here already have made that decision. And there may be others who are watching at home, uh, pulling up the, the the message from this year or the year before, whatever it might be, for the opening night. And, and again, there are those who cannot, and we understand that, and nobody is criticizing them. But we have to be honest and look ourselves in the mirror and say, am I able to go, and should I go? But, uh, you know, there are times when we actually counsel people, please do not go. You've got certain health issues Please don't go. I remember one, one lady one time, we, we actually counseled her, please don't go. She came anyway, ended up in the hospital, and uh, it, it just got to be a, a mess uh, because there are some people that really uh, cannot or should not be coming, but the majority of us certainly should be. God gives us a command here in Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter, and we would be remiss not to read Deuteronomy 14, at some point in the feast, but usually fairly early in the feast. 
Because here, Christ, who inspired the words of this book, uh, shows us how it is that we are able to keep this feast. In verse 22, Deuteronomy 14, verse 22, it says, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. I remember a man who actually was a minister in a former association many, many years ago who said that, well, we really don't have to keep it every year. It's just every third year. And he got certain things mixed up with third tithe year and all kinds of things. But anyway, the Scripture says that the field produces year by year, every year. And you shall eat before the eternal your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithes of your grain and your new wine and your oil are the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the eternal your God always. There's a purpose that we're here. It is not just to have fun. Now, yes, we do have fun, and God wants us to rejoice. He wants us to have fun. More than fun. You know, fun is, you know, things that are thrilled, temporary. But, but He wants us to develop, to develop those relationships with one another. And to, to fellowship with, with purpose. And thinking about why we are here. And coming to the services to learn each day. That we may learn to fear the Lord our God always. Now, if that is not your purpose for keeping the feast, you're here for the wrong reason. It isn't for a vacation. It isn't to skip services and go out in the surf and drink a beer. That's not what this is all about. Uh, It is to come here and be uh, before God and to learn. He says, but if the uh, journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put His name is too far from you when the Lord your God has blessed you, and this applies to most of us here, Then you shall exchange it for money, take the money in your hand, and go to the place which the eternal your God chooses. It's not so easy just to pack up a couple cows or a couple sheep and, uh, you know, a couple uh, uh, large uh, bottles of skins of wine or something like that. No, he's saying that for a lot of people, for a number of them, they would take it, turn it into money, and go up and be able to buy those things at that location. And that's what most of us do in our modern world. Uh, there are a few people of our brethren around the world who may actually bring their agricultural produce to the feast. But most of us don't work in the agricultural field, and we, we get paid wages, and so we have that money, and we come up to keep the, the feast. Notice verse 26, you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or similar drink. For whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the eternal your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. So the whole family is to rejoice. And it's important that we make sure that the whole family does. But you know, I've found over the years that rejoicing at the feast isn't always just doing fun things, going to an amusement park. Amusement parks are fun while you're on the ride, but then it's that long line waiting in the hot sun or other things. You're dog tired by the end of the day. But spending time with friends and doing things together with friends, that's important, whether it be for our teenagers and our children or for those of us who are adults. Spending time together is far more valuable than any 
physical thing we might be doing. Now, certainly we can you know, use that money to, if we want to go to amusement park, we could certainly do that. But that shouldn't be the main thing of the feast. That should be, uh, you know, a complement to the feast, but not the main thing, not the main event. And it says, you are to rejoice, you and your household. Let's notice uh, over in uh, Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, because there's a lesson here regarding this feast. Leviticus 23. And here it tells us in verse 43, he said, I'm going to start verse 42. It says, You shall dwell in booths for seven days. Booths are temporary dwellings. Seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Now, we are spiritual Israelites, and we follow the example of temporary dwellings during this time. And we, we could even notice how when Christ was on the, the mountain and the transfiguration took place, uh, you'll notice that uh, Moses, Moses and Elijah appeared in vision, not literally, but in vision, and there was a cloud there uh, surrounding Christ and, and, and a glorious state there. Uh, but the, the, the disciples who were there, Peter and James and John, Peter um, a- asked Jesus, shall we make a booth, one for you? And, and one for Moses, one for Elijah. He wanted to know uh, about booths because he associated the future, the millennium, when the resurrection takes place and Moses and Elijah and a lot of other people are going to be there. He associated that with the Feast of Tabernacles. And so here, we, we do the same thing ourselves. We have uh, booths. Uh, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the eternal, your God. Now, why did he make them dwell in booths? Well, booths are temporary dwellings. And there's a powerful message in this that we are living temporarily on this earth. This is not, this is not the, the goal to have as many toys and as much success in this world. Yes, we want success. Yes, we want to live an abundant life in this world but we have to realize that this is very temporary. And as I get older, the more I realize just how fast time goes by and how closer to the end that I am personally. And I know that many of our members are older, and you understand this. But those who are teenagers, those who are younger, may not comprehend that this life is very temporary. And there are a lot of people that don't have the privilege of growing old. Uh, they, they die at a much earlier age. So it's important, no matter what our age is, that we think about why we're here and what is the purpose of life. And God gives us this lesson here during the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles that life is temporary. And as Paul said, he wanted to put off this tent and be given a new body. Uh, and, and that's something we're looking forward to when we have spirit bodies that never get sick, never suffer pain, never get tired, what a, what a time that's going to be. And you know, I, I can remember when I first came into the church, I couldn't imagine wanting the kingdom tomorrow. In fact, that was one of the things that somebody said. I was, I think, standing outside getting ready to go into church, but several were talking, and somebody said, you know, if, if the kingdom came tomorrow, it wouldn't be too soon. And I was thinking at age 19, well, I don't want it to come that quickly because there are certain things I wanted to do yet in this lifetime. But I think that those of us who are older, we can look back with greater insight 
with greater perspective and realize that this life, no matter how wonderful it might be, is very temporary, very short. You know, there's some, uh, some important reminders here that I'd like to give you before I close. And, and that is that we ought to come to services every single day. There, there are those individuals who think, well, I'm going to take a vacation from the feast because I want to go out fishing if I'm down in, you know, someplace. Well, it could be even the middle of the country uh, where there's a lake or whatever. Uh, but especially on the, the Gulf Coast or other uh, island sites that uh, where people go, uh, you know, I want to go fishing, so I, I'll just skip services today. Or I want to go to this amusement park, and, and we need all day to do it, to take the kids there. Or I just want to drive up in the mountains and, and see the scenery and take a break from the feast. Well, I remember there was a, one of those uh, bulletin boards where people could talk back and forth. Uh, this goes back 25, 30 years and there were there's one individual that said, "Why do we have to go to uh, at, why do we have to attend services every day during the feast?" It says the first day is a holy convocation, and the eighth day is. Why do we have to do it uh, every day? And the answer that she kept getting was that, well, it's a tradition of the church. And you know, it is a tradition of the church, but it's a long tradition of the church. Let's go over to Nehemiah, the eighth chapter. Nehemiah 8 and verse 18. Got to go the right direction here. Nehemiah 8. And this chapter will no doubt be referred to sometime during the feast because it's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. And then in verse 18 it says also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he, or Ezra, read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So there was a sacred assembly on the eighth day, and there was a certain prescribed manner that they were to observe that day, just as there is on the first day, there were sacrifices they had and various things they had to do. But also during the feast, there were prescribed manners for each day regarding sacrifices. But notice that they read from the book of the law for the full eight days, day by day. And so make it a point that you're going to be here uh, every single day, uh, as long as you are healthy. If you are not healthy, it might uh, do everybody a favor to stay home if you have some sort of contagious uh, affliction. But um, otherwise, you should be here every single day, every service. Get the rest you need so that you will be alert. Sometimes, especially when we're new in the, in the church, we, we want to cram everything that we can into it, and so we stay up late, and then we drag out in the morning, and we have a hard time staying awake during the feast. Well, you know, use some, some character, exercise some character. Use some wisdom and exercise character and set some parameters for yourself. And don't just drag on uh, while you're, you're enjoying a fellowship and company uh, without some sort of limits as to how late you're going to stay up. And pray regarding the messages. The more you put into uh, asking God for help to understand the messages and to inspire the messages and inspire your hearing, the, the greater benefit you're going to get from it. 
So be sure to pray regarding the messages. Now, the second point is, don't forget those who need extra attention. Uh, Here in Nehemiah, the 8th chapter, and verse 10, he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our uh, our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the, of the eternal is your strength. So, they were to send portions to others who were not uh, as well off, blessed as much, uh, for whatever reason that might be. We have widows that... It's not just a matter of uh, giving them money, but giving them time and attention, letting them know they're important, and including them when you go out to eat. Uh, Or you have a a group over to your your condo or whatever it might be. Include the widows. Be sure to think about the new people, especially if you are from a church area and you know that there's somebody that's new in your congregation. Be sure that you are a party of at least one to make that person feel welcome. And they might be a little bit short on second tie that first year, and so help them out in that way. Now, I'm not talking about people who do not save their second tithe and and come to the feast year after year after year expecting people of of good faith to, to help them out. We've had people like that. They don't save it, but they want other people who have sacrificed to save for the feast, and they want them to to bail them out. Uh, we're not talking about that. We're talking about new people or people who we know have had a very difficult year. Maybe they were out of work for a period of time. Maybe they've worked for 30 years and all of a sudden they're out of work uh, for no fault of their own. The company's closed down. And we, we need to think about those people, but especially new people. But we need to think about all people who might need some help, those struggling financially and those who simply need a little bit of comfort and help and, and, and taking them under wings. And thirdly, be a light to the world, the world outside. Uh, Mr. Dexter Wakefield was encouraging us to study the, uh, the statutes and the judgments. And he's not the first to do so, but uh, he gave us some chapters we could read. And I was reading through there. And I noticed this one in, in Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 and notice in verse, verses 14 and 15. Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. And verse 15, each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and uh, has set his heart on it. Uh, lest he cry out against you to the eternal, and it be sin to you. Now, we understand that the people that we serve, uh, or that, I'm sorry, that serve us during the feast, uh, those individuals who are working in restaurants, those individuals who are taking care of our hotel rooms, the maids that are working there, most of them are on relatively low salaries, uh, they have to share their tips in restaurants oftentimes with others who are working there. So it's not just that one person that you're trying to serve. but And their, their time to earn a living is somewhat limited as well. There are only certain hours that they're able to work or certain hours that uh, the, the restaurant may be open. 
And, and so there's a, a point here that we are not to oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy. And many of these people are immigrants. Uh, some of them may be here illegally. We don't know. Uh, if it's the United States or Europe or some other parts of the world, they may be illegally. We don't know what they, it, it is. But it says here, uh, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. In other words, God doesn't tell us that we are to take all of our money and send it into the church. Uh, I, I, I hope that everybody's generous with offerings and, and so forth. But at the same time, God allows us to be able to earn money, to be able to share and to keep it in rotation out there, to help others. And we should not begrudge those individuals. And we need to show them due respect and apply this in that sense. You shall not oppress the hired servant, a hired servant. Well, this is a person who is serving you during the feast. He may be serving a lot of other people, but he is serving you for a short, short period of time. And we ought to take care of that individual. So, we're not to oppress the poor, oppress the poor but give him his wages. Tipping in restaurants and uh, giving tips to hotel maids on a daily basis or however it would be done, wherever you might be, uh, that's something we can do. We're here on earth for a very short period of time. Now, this feast shows us that we are to live in temporary dwellings, just as our dwelling is temporary. Uh, this is not a vacation, and we need to fight that attitude of, of thinking of the feast as a vacation. It is the feast of the eternal, and it has profound meaning for us. God gives us a picture, even though it's looking through a, a darkened glass. He gives a picture of what the first thousand years of eternal life will be like. And he gives that to those who respond to his calling. So let's never lose sight of the big picture. Let's keep the big picture of why we're here and have a wonderful Feast of Tabernacles 2019.